Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to Tales to Terrify, part of the District of Wonders network. Featuring Starship Sofa and Far-Fetched Fables, everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good evening, children of the night. I have one movie to briefly comment on before we get on to our story for the night. I watched the 2015 film, We Are Still Here. As is my custom, I went into the screening without knowing anything about the movie aside from it being billed as a horror movie. After seeing the movie, I took a look at its Rotten Tomatoes page, and as of right now, it has a 95% rating. And right next to it, from non-critics, a 48% audience rating. I won't go into too much detail and steal the opportunity to be surprised by the movie, but it features a haunted house that may or may not have the spirit of the couple who moves in's dead son, but it definitely does have the malevolent spirits that wake up every three decades who demand sacrifice. The house also has creepy neighbors who love plot exposition. The movie goes over some familiar ground that I haven't really seen since the 90s, which is both good and bad because some of that we really should have left in the 90s. Oh, and for any of you aspiring writers, when the protagonists are getting freaked out in their haunted house, could you have the decency to have them run out screaming into the night and then killed out there? Instead of logic such as, oh no, my house is filled with murderous ghosts, better run into the poorly lit basement that I haven't fully explored yet. Upstairs is all right as well, unless that's where they keep their unlicensed nuclear accelerator for fighting ghosts, then I'll give you a pass. Strangely, on the same day, I also saw a movie called Upstream Color, which isn't a horror film, but does have some nasty themes in it, and both movies have Andrew Sensenig in them. A quick item of housekeeping. I didn't mention last week that the episode art has a very slight change to it. Some people noticed it and were curious. It's really done just to make sure that we know that album art changes make it all the way out from us to your podcatcher software, since we haven't done anything special with it since moving to Acast. We're kicking around the idea of accepting artist submissions to add a little extra to each episode again. That's still maybe, but stay tuned. Just before we hear about Trevor Tolliver, who wrote this evening's story, I'll let you know that it's about a haunted jukebox. I recall that while growing up in Zanesville, Ohio, there is a Pizza Hut on Maple Avenue with a buffet that I'd love to go to with friends. It also had a jukebox there. We'd play whatever our favorite songs were at that time. Uh, I think that I liked Gangsta's Paradise and Nobody Knows from the Tony Rich Project and Alanis Morissette's entire Jagged Little Pill album. And my group of friends really dug Deep Blue Something's Breakfast at Tiffany's mainly because we had a Tiffany in our group of friends. 
However, when we'd wrap up our meal at Pizza Hut, on the way out the door, we'd scrape together our remaining change and play as many iterations of the Spice Girls' Wannabe or Los Del Rio's Macarena, depending on our mood. I like to presume that we ruined everyone else's meal after we left, but management probably just pulled the plug on the thing once they figured out what was going on. Let's hear about Trevor. Trevor Tolliver lives in Southern California with his husband, four adopted sons, and a menagerie of pets, some lazy, some lethal. Same with the children. His book, You Don't Own Me, The Life and Times of Leslie Gore, was published by Backbeat Books in 2015, and his essays in short horror fiction has appeared in collections like Harvest International and the far more literary-sounding Sharkosaurus. He teaches courses in developmental writing and reading at Mount San Antonio College, and he always tries to make time to write when he's not busy being exhausted. And now drop a quarter in and listen with me to Trevor Tolliver's Don't Play the Song on D6. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Bernie Hodges could barely suppress the whistle of delight when he finally pried apart the panels of the wooden crate potted the frizzy plumes of excelsior and unwrapped the old blanket that had been strapped around his spectacular find a 1946 Wurlitzer jukebox scars and all the juke was exactly as the man from the auction had described it bernie ran a hand over the curve of its top along the pockmarked chrome of its faceplate let his fingers bounce over the call buttons some of the numbers having been rubbed off over the years from decades of fingertips. Felt the deep spiderweb scratches in the foggy glass dome that protected the stack of 45 records inside. He stepped back and spotted the tear in the speaker. Looked like to Bernie that it had been kicked in, and slightly rotating its bulk to peer around it, used his pointer finger to outline the two bullet holes in its broad side, as if someone had tried to shoot into the machine's guts. And before he straightened up, Bernie spotted the note scrawled in a shaky, rushed hand that bore the same warning that the man at the auction had been directed to share with whomever purchased the juke. Don't play the song on D6. Bernie had forgotten the warning when he bought the old player. But finding the shred of notepaper taped to its rear reminded him. It was as tempting as a sign hanging on a wooden fence that screamed, Don't touch! Wet paint! So Bernie flicked the knobs that turned the index pages of song titles behind the glass to identify the forbidden track. He marveled over the names that shuffled by him in a blur. 
Bill Haley and his Comets, the Penguins, Connie Francis, Gene Vincent and his Blue Caps, Buddy Holly. And without realizing it, like missing the last step on a staircase, Bernie tumbled longingly into a pastel-colored daydream, recalling the hot, stuffy diner in his Indiana hometown that stunk to high heaven of sizzling hamburger where he and his buddies would congregate on Friday nights, free from teachers and parents, and buy chocolate banana maltas for the girls from the rival high school and bop to that raunchy tequila song. Bernie was wrenched back into his own little roadside dive when the D-page slapped down behind the glass. D-4, Bird Dog, the Everly Brothers. D-5, Diana, Paul Anka, D6, nothing. Where the name of a golden oldie tune and its pompadour crooner should have neatly been typed in all caps that resist a dark smudge of ink, layer upon layer of black scribbles tattooed into a little slip of paper. Except for that, according to the man who wrote out the bill of sale and delivery, she played like a dream. Well, let's not wait, Bernie said to himself. He grunted as he bent over, struggled with his shaky, arthritic fingers to plug the cord into the wall, and stepped back. His joints cracked like a mousetrap when he straightened his spine to see her come to life. A soft white light, like a sleepy eye lifting its lid to the morning, glowed inside the chamber containing the pillar of records. A kaleidoscope of green, blue, and pink colored the cylinder horseshoe that traced its facade, and once its gears yawned, stretched and smacked their lips in drowsy wakefulness, bubbles began to percolate merrily up the columns on either side of her face. Bernie bit his lower lip and grinned, a smile that was big on a mug not accustomed to wearing one nearly pained him. Looks like you seen better days, Missy. That's all right, though, so have I. He patted his head. You're still a natural beauty, ain't you? Without provocation, the arm inside clicked and whirred, selected a vinyl disc from the stack, lowered it onto the turntable, and the needle dipped into the edge of the platter. Up from the depths of its speakers came one of Bernie's all-time favorites that he hadn't heard in years, the plaintive cry of Kathy Jean and the roommates and Please Love Me Forever. The blast of nostalgia, record hops, tail fins on Chevys, ten-cent tickets to the creature feature playing down the neon-drenched bijou was so rich and instantaneous that his chest to stifle a sob. The swinging door that led into the small kitchen thumped open, and Eileen used her elbow to keep it from swishing closed so she could drag her metal bucket and mop behind her. Some of the soapy water slopped onto the floor and splashed her stained turquoise leggings, and she cursed under her breath. She wore a grease-spattered apron wrapped snugly around the waist of her baggy sweater, on her chest was a weary-looking mama bear feeding a baby in a high chair with one paw and frying up some food over a stove with the other with a banner beneath the cartoon proclaiming, barely surviving. The shot glass lenses of her glasses shrunk her eyes to the size of dark buttons, which was funny to observe during the day, but at night it gave her the malicious, pinched appearance of a weasel. "'Why are you doing that now?' Bernie said. "'It was only a quarter to ten, with four hours still left until closing time.' She glanced around at the vacant booths, the line of empty stools that moped along the counter. "'Don't want me to bug the customers?' <laughs> She made what passed for a laugh, though it always reminded Bernie of the gurgling chortle of a garbage disposal." She dipped her mop in the bucket and dumped a pool of water on the pitted linoleum, then glanced over at her husband and noticed a jukebox for the first time. That hunk of junk is what you've been waiting for? Gorgeous, ain't she? Always wanted one. He pointed to the playlists. You should see what's loaded up in her. 
we could live our teen years all over again. She gurgled her laugh again. It would be nicer than this, huh? She said. Years of smoking gave her the voice of a braying mule. Bernie wasn't about to agree with her, but maybe life could have been a little better than the one in which they found themselves rotting away, a couple of cellmates serving a life sentence together. Their roadside cafe, too lifeless to attract the college crowd from the university over the hill, and too run down to entice any of the townies, was plopped down on a dirt lot and strung with faded old Christmas lights just to remind passers-by that it existed. The joint didn't even have a proper name. It called attention to itself by the neon bar sign that stood like a scarecrow at the side of the two-lane road with an arrow bent in the shape of a capital L that pointed to the sardine can of a structure with mismatched walls of vinyl and rusted metal siding. Somewhere along the way, an old western wagon wheel had been discarded by the side of the road, and Bernie had dragged it across the lot, propped it up against the wall near the front door, and was quite pleased that he'd given his little dive a southwest theme without much effort. Still, the sad little place off Highway 14, frequented during the day by truck drivers on their way from one place to another, and at night by a handful of local farmer burnouts who sat sad and ghost-like at the bar on the weekends, was known around the county simply as Bernie's Place. That was the this that the pair lived and breathed, unchanging except for the slow and creeping lava flow of age, creases in the cheeks and forehead, doughy flesh around the neck, acute chest pains and muscles that could predict rain, an unfair trade-off of less hair for more liver spots and fungal toes. Bernie took it in stride, punctuating their monotonous timeline with little surprises like the refurbished jukebox, but Eileen would just dip her mop into her bucket and listen to the sound of her wheezing lungs in her head, scrubbing the floor with such ferocity as if she were stabbing it. How much did you pay for that big magic bean? Got it for a song, Bernie said, then chuckled at his unintentional pun. Well, even with the prettiest song, I'm sure it was too much. Meanwhile, we got a stack of invoices that need paying and dust collecting on the fanciest booze behind the bar. I know, Eileen. I know you think I'm worth a hell of a lot more dead than alive, Bernie said. He lifted a wan smile that struggled to rise beneath the weight of his wrinkles. He wrapped an arm around the jukebox as if it were an old school flame and said, but you just trust me now, Eileen. This little lady'll start bringing the folks in. Trust you, she muttered. Forty-three years, Burn. I've been holding the losing hand of cards. He heard her. He always heard her. But he could ignore her the way a man learns to sleep through the screech of a freight train that thunders down the rails beside his shanty. Instead, he took a sliver of paper wrote out a message in his neatest printing and taped it to the glass on the front of the jukebox. As intrigued as he was, Bernie was a kid who devoured Hardy Boy Who Dennis and marveled at the deductive powers of Sherlock Holmes. He could also appreciate the romance of a little unsolved mystery. All right, Missy, you just keep your secrets, he whispered with a smile. His note said, Please don't play D6. By lunchtime the next day, the counter was crowded with the usual clutch of truckers in flannel, quilted vests, and snapback caps that advertised the products they were lugging up and down the state. They swapped stories and guffawed and swore, sipping beers and chomping on cold tuna sandwiches and slaw. The guys who regularly dropped in for a bite during their hauls stayed away from Eileen's cooking, which they knew was as greasy and indigestible as her personality. Bernie pointed out the word at her to everyone who sidled up to eat, even plopped a few free quarters down to entice them to give her a whirl. Like curious children, they flipped through the pages of songs 
picked out tunes they loved as younger men or songs that reminded them of their beloved mothers and good old daddies and fell in love with the new old toy. Bobby Darren's Splish Splash was followed by Fats Domino's Blueberry Hill. Bernie marveled to one of the guys, no one but Fats could make the blues sound so damn cheerful. Slicing sandwiches in the kitchen, Eileen could hear shaboom drifting into the pass-through window like cigarette smoke as Bernie kept telling the customers, Ain't she a beaut? I mean, ain't you never seen anything like her? Eileen, irritated by the constant noise, wanted to take a hatchet to it. Late that night, after the last couple of Alkies oozed out of their stools and tottered out the door, Bernie sat at the jukebox with a fresh rag and polished the copper and nickel trim pieces. Its mechanical arm sifted through its stack of records, plucked a disc, and dropped it onto the turntable. After a few warm crackles and pops, the Paris sisters began to purr their lilting lullaby. I love how you love me, their angelic voices pining over low cascading strings. Eileen glowered over at the old fool who was smiling and drooling over that damn thing. Totaling the receipts of the day, as modest as they were, should have been a fairly quick task. But they weren't adding up correctly, thanks to the handfuls of quarters Bernie handed out like candy to invite visitors to meet, what he called with no small resentment from Eileen, the grandest lady in the joint. By the end of the week, Bernie's place had what they could classify as a small crowd. The regular farmers and few familiar townies were there, but this time they brought along their frumpy wives, who seemed just as surprised to be there as Bernie was to see them. He'd never met a lot of them, having only heard about them in slurred and frustrated tirades and complaints delivered over the rims of beer mugs. The folks slapped down cash, and Bernie poured behind the counter, and in the kitchen, Eileen was filling orders for platters of cheese and crackers and bowls of chips and dips. Out in the dining room, Herb and Marv and Larry moved several tables and chairs out of the way to create an open space in front of the Wurlitzer. They dropped quarter after quarter down the metal throat of the jukebox, and in return, she gave them Elvis Presley, Danny and the Juniors, the Shirelles, and Bobby Rydell. Marv played the Del Vikings, Come Go With Me, three times in a row. Eileen swore she would punch the guy square in the jaw if he did it a fourth time, but Bernie just smiled and tapped the beat on the top of the bar, and the jukebox, glowing angelically in her corner, didn't seem bothered by the multiple requests and gladly obliged. When they weren't dancing, the husbands and their wives piled into the booths, moving with ease through warm and cozy conversations about current town gossip interspersed with gauzy memories of the Eisenhower years. In the background, behind their laughter and the clink of glasses, the jukebox serenaded her guests with songs she thought they might love. Bernie sneaked into the kitchen and fanned Eileen with a spray of dollar bills, have you seen it out there? People are dancing. They're enjoying themselves in our place. It looks like prom night at the old folks' home, Eileen grumbled. And as much as she despised her husband's clockwork whore, she had no ill feelings against the cash. The last couple slipped their coats on and, laughing and patting Bernie on the shoulder, thanked him for a lovely evening. Bernie locked the door flipped the sign to closed and pulled down the shade. Alone in the dining room, Bernie dragged the tables back into place for the next day's lunch service. Eileen poked her head through the service window and was about to shout to Bernie to grab the receipts for her when Bernie said something that she thought was directed at her. You gave him a swell time, missy, Bernie was saying as he spun chairs around and tucked them beneath the tables. You ought to be right proud of yourself. I'm sure glad you're here. The motors whirred and clicked inside the jukebox, and the flamingos warbled their achingly romantic melody drenched in dreamy echo. I only have eyes 
for you. The machine sat cooing in the corner. Eileen's grip on the counter was so tight that her knuckles turned as white as spoiled mayonnaise. Anger roasted her face like she was standing too close to one of the stove burners. Bernie's cooing wasn't directed to her at all. No, he was talking to that... that creature. And the damn thing seemed to... No, that's impossible. It couldn't be. You get yourself some rest now, came Bernie's calm, soothing voice. Eileen leaned forward and peeked around the edge of the window, watched him buff the glass face of the juke with the sleeve of his elbow. I think there might be some long, busy evenings in your future. We'll see you tomorrow morning. Before the song had ended, the needle lifted, the arm returned the forty-five to the pile, extracted another, and laid it on the turntable. Then came Jesse Belvin's golden pipes from Good Night, My Love, wishing his lover a peaceful night softened by dreams. Eileen bunched the dish rag in her hand and bit into it. Something dark and freezing sunk its talons into the usual sturdy shoulders of her sanity. No, she kept telling herself, no, it didn't, it couldn't, Bernie... I swear to Christ that I can't be seeing what I'm seeing. Hadn't pressed a single button. And then one night, Bernie came down with a fever and chills, his joints burning like lightning strikes. Eileen didn't have to try hard to persuade him to stay in bed, and she was glad to have the cafe to herself make at least one small change so she could unclench her teeth for the day. She hand-wrote a sign on a square of cardboard, out of service, and rested it against the glass eye of the jukebox. There were a few groans of disappointment. A couple of the guys had stuffed their pockets with quarters before heading into Bernie's for lunch. Eileen cranked out stacks of sandwiches, whipped up fresh potato salad, and as she flattened a couple of sizzling beef patties on the grill, it occurred to her that she hadn't even felt the urge to smoke since the minute she walked into the door that morning, tied on her apron, and silenced the jukebox. Around midnight, the last customer of the day gulped down the last swallow of beer in his mug burped in his throat and released the exhaust out of his nostrils. Too bad the juke wasn't spinning records today, the man said as he unfolded a couple of bucks for a tip and dropped it on the counter. Had a king's ransom in quarters on me tonight. Yeah, it's a shame, Eileen said. If we can't get it up and running again, we might have to send it to the big junkyard in the sky. She knew it was ridiculous, but she was hoping the jukebox had, honestly, what, heard her, understood her, took offense to her. Once she was alone, Eileen scooped up the dollar bills and swept the dirty mugs into a plastic tub she had settled on her hip. She was humming to herself some tuneless melody when a man's voice spoke to her from the dark corner of the dining room. Eileen gasped and spun around, dropping the tub and hearing the glasses inside clatter like chattering teeth. The jukebox slowly brightened to full life, and the man's voice wasn't speaking like Eileen had first thought, but singing. Though she didn't know enough to identify Shep and the Limelights by name, she recognized the lyrics. Something about Daddy being home to stay and then the needle lifted and the arm replaced the record. Good God, Eileen whispered, nearly swallowing her tongue. A scum of scaly goosebumps slithered across her arms and down her back. She approached the machine in slow, measured steps, just near enough that she was awash in the pale rainbow of its colorful, soft light. Do something, she said 
her own voice uncomfortably loud in the thick, compacted silence of the dining room. She felt a flush of embarrassment talking to it, but she couldn't deny the nervous, sawdust dryness in her mouth. If you can understand me, do something. She waited a few beats, but the jukebox just sat there, mute, dumb. Tiny bubbles fizzed up its dual columns. Eileen crouched with a grunt, pawing the rear of the machine like a grizzly bear trying to knock down a beehive. Her fingers grazed the power cord twice, but she kept fumbling for a hold. Something above her clicked and whirred, and she realized the mechanical arm was grabbing a fresh record. The sudden blast of music knocked Eileen on her rump, and she kicked herself backwards to get away from the speaker. Over a grumbling bass and ferocious stuttering piano came Smiley Lewis's sharp voice in, I hear you knocking, firing off stanzas like bullets. Stop! Eileen cried. As fast as her bulk could move her, she crawled back to the jukebox and squeezed her porky arm between the back of the machine and the wall. She fumbled with the electric cord until she was finally able to wrap her sausage fingers around it and give it purchase. All the while, Smiley sang, almost punishing Eileen, taunting her through the lyrics. She can knock, but she won't be let in. And with one good tug, the cord went limp as the plug sparked out of the wall and fell to the floor like a throttled snake. Smiley's voice slowed to a disappointed growl as the record spun to a stop. The lights behind the glass faded and the last of the bubbles floated to the top of the arc like a school of dead guppies. Eileen sagged against the wall and sighed, rubbing her hands together and pinching the tips of her fingers to get them to stop quivering. Fighting the throb in her back, she grabbed at the edge of the bar counter and hoisted herself up like a dairy cow trying to find its footing and staggered into the kitchen. She fished her car keys out of her purse, draped her coat over her arm and smacked off the light. As she moved through the kitchen door, she trained her eyes on the glass entrance and the expanse of the dirt lot outside, focusing only on a speedy exit trying to exude courage in front of it, in case it was watching. Something behind her let out a piercing, metallic shriek. Eileen screamed and whirled, nearly stumbling over a barstool before she was able to counter the fall and stay upright on her knees, as weak as chewed bubblegum. The jukebox, silent, dark, had crept three feet away from the wall. Still feeling under the weather and barking phlegm into a handkerchief, Bernie couldn't resist coming to the cafe the next morning. He was too excited to see the jukebox, and on the drive over he kept bugging Eileen for details. Did people play it all day? What songs did they pick? I don't know, she replied. I was too busy doing the work of two people to notice a whole lot. Inside, Bernie spotted the sign Eileen had forgotten to take down from the jukebox. He knitted his brows and rushed to it as if it were a dog that had been struck by a car and needed comforting. If he could have whipped out his tit to nurture it, Eileen thought with disgust, he probably would have. Bernie peered in the glass, thumped gently on its side, then took a peek behind the unit. Oh, here's the problem. Just came unplugged, she did. He beamed, having fixed a problem that wasn't serious at all, and slowly the columns began to bubble in appreciation. Bernie plunked in a quarter, pressed a couple of buttons, and the speaker burst to life with, Wake up, little Susie! When Bernie disappeared into the kitchen to grab his apron and begin tidying up the front counter, Eileen would have bet the deed on their house that the jukebox hicked up its volume a few notches, almost as if, yes, most definitely, as if it were gloating. 
They locked up just after one o'clock in the morning, and as Eileen tended to the business of the cafe, Bernie, hacking up his lung into a napkin, pulled the seat up to the jukebox and dropped in a quarter to request the song to keep him some pleasant company as he polished its chrome and glass pieces. Between tallying receipts, Eileen glanced up and watched her husband fawn and ogle the wretched thing, all the while feeling her temper boil up in her skull like the mercury in a glass thermometer. She tried all day to figure out how to articulate her fear uh, concerns, rehearsing it over and over again in an imaginary confrontation, trying to present a case that only a psychiatrist could love. There was no point in waiting. It wouldn't sound any less crazy a week from then, and she didn't want to put up with so much as an hour more of the oily dread that sat in her belly like car sickness. Eileen slouched across the dining room and punched the side of the word at her to steal a bit of her husband's focused attention. The Frankie Avalon tune on the turntable skipped, and the needle lifted and hovered over the record, cautious as a finger over a trigger. You listen to me, Eileen said. Let's get rid of this old clunker. We can go up to town, pick up a nice new stereo and a pile of them oldies CDs, and you can keep playing your songs without the place looking quite the shabby. What? Bernie flinched as if she'd struck him. Why? She jerked a pudgy thumb at the juke. That blasted thing needs to go. I know you're going to think I'm nuts, but last night when I was alone, the thing started started playing on its own. It's an antique, Bernie whined, wiping the droplets of perspiration from his brow. I'm sure she's got her little gremlins, maybe a spring out of place or a wire crossed in a... And she's not a she... It's an it, Eileen barked, and I'm not talking about a loose screw somewhere in its guts. The thing, it, it thinks somehow. It picks a song and tells you what it's thinking. Bernie's eyes narrowed. And what is it thinking? I think it's mad at me. It's something against me, Eileen said. And don't you dare look at me like that, like I gone bonkers or something. You know I don't go for no ghost stories or any of that nonsense, but maybe, just give it a think. Maybe that old thing has a spook in it. Look. She pointed at the scratches on the glass, the rip in the canvas stretched over the speaker, the goddamn gunshots in its gristle. Why does it look like people been attacking it? Where'd you even find the foul thing? An estate sale, Bernie said. He honked his nose into his handkerchief. His skin took the pallor of sweat stains under the armpits of a white T-shirt. And she's old, probably done time in all kinds of bars and honky-tonks and pool halls. You can't really think she has a bug in her craw against you. You make her sound like some kind of monster. He chuckled and added, You act like she's jealous. Sounds more to me like you might be the jealous one. The veins in Eileen's temples rippled as she clamped her jaws together. It is a monster, she said through gritted teeth. I want it gone, and if you won't help me, so help me, Bernie, I'll drag the goddamn thing out to the highway myself. Bernie swayed in his shoes, so he rested a hand against the dome of the juke to steady himself. Now, you listen to me. I never asked you for nothing, and I saved up my own money, took him bottles and cans for years, just like a kid whose mama won't give him no allowance. How do you think that makes a man feel, Eileen, when he's got miles behind him and only a few inches laying out in front? I finally had enough to buy myself something special like this, and I done it. If you don't like her, you go home and stay put, but she ain't going nowhere. Beside them, the mechanical arm replaced Frankie with a new platter, and after a brassy burst of horns, Nappy Brown bellowed his hit, Don't be angry! Begging not to be driven away, pleading not to be forced out. See? See there? 
I'm not waiting for you. She nudged past Bernie, nearly knocking him over like a cat on a gatepost, and clawed at the side of the jukebox. If I have to pull the wall out with it... Stop, Bernie said, his voice choked and small. Eileen, wait, please. He gripped one of her ham-hawk arms, but as she tried to flail herself away from him, she could feel his grip weaken and his old bent fingers slid from her bicep. He stumbled backward like a newborn deer, reached out to grab the counter of the bar but missed, and landed hard on his back with a slap on the linoleum floor. His old head dangled to one side over his shoulder. Eileen hesitated, not wanting to interrupt her mission before the thing could be struck and demolished by a passing tanker truck, but she realized Bernie wasn't moving. It wasn't until she lumbered over to him and saw the halo of red-black blood around his head that she realized he'd struck his head on the tiled step where trunks could rest their feet. Bernie's labored, rasping breathing, which had cut into Nappy Brown's song like a misplaced musical note, was gone. Bernie Hodges was dead. The Duke's arm put Nappy to rest in the pile, pulled another forty-five, and plunked it down on the whirling turntable. The needle found a spot in the middle of the song and blasted two words from a fifties nut rocker. What did... Then the arm grabbed the record, flipped it over, and the needle picked a groove in the platter and pulled two words from what sounded like a slow, saucy ballad. You do. The arm continued to flip the disc, the needle seeking the same four words, flipping and playing over and over until Eileen was able to figure out what the jukebox was asking her in its own accusatory tone and its own broken kind of language. What did... You do. What did you do? She hadn't realized she'd balled her fists into cinder blocks. What did I do? Let me show you. She stomped over to it and jammed a fat thumb into D and six, determined to break whatever authority the thing claimed to have over all of them. Here, Eileen spat. Here, you hoary bitch. Then, in a move so swift that she even startled herself, Eileen grabbed her mop from its resting place in the bucket, upended it in an arc of dirty water, and launched its surrounded wooden tip into the scratched eye of the jukebox like a harpoon, stirring the handle around to smash as much glass as she could. She pumped the stick like a butter turn, reveling in the brittle, crackling noise of shattering vinyl. The white bulb that lit the record chamber popped into blackness. Satisfied and nearly faint from exhaustion, Eileen dropped her makeshift spear, stepped aside to catch her breath and assess the situation to take a quick second to decide her next move. Her decision was made for her. Her shadow stretched out before her in the darkness, and she twisted to see what was illuminating her from behind. The benign swirl of colors in the jukes bubblers darkened to a murky stained scarlet, and from deep within its bowels, a dim red light flickered to life, then flared like a sunspot into a blinding, murderous light. From its speakers, low at first and rising to a crescendo that vibrated the concrete slab beneath the cafe and felt like hypodermics in Eileen's eardrums came the deep, resounding roar of a thousand primal screams of horror and grief, the churning, bellowing symphony of rage. Eileen clamped her hands over her ears to block out the jet engine shriek of the enraged Wurlitzer and screamed, though not loud enough to be heard. She clenched her eyes shut, turning away from her adversary, and as she tried in her panic to picture how close she was to the front door, huddled against one of the room's broad walls, waiting out the horrid noise. But the machine's mechanical arm brushed over the broken razor shards of vinyl and clasped a fresh record, primed it, 
and shot it out of the machine-scaping maw. The record sliced into Eileen's flabby neck just over her left shoulder, and a severed artery inside her throat sprayed a crescent of red-black blood on the wall. Three more records burst out from the opening and dug into Eileen's back like saw blades. Another one dug into her hip just above her right buttock, and a final disc chopped into the back of her knee, dropping her to the floor like a sack of grain. She slid down the wall and came to rest on her belly, and the records cleaved down the length of her body, stuck up like plates along the spine of a stegosaurus. The jukebox quieted in almost thoughtful meditation. Eileen gagged and gurgled in the silence. In Eileen's final moments of consciousness, as the blood emptied and pooled around her body, the Wurlitzer's mechanical arm searched for one final song, running up and down what remained of the stack of albums until it sensed the one it was looking for. The record sat unevenly on the turntable, littered with bits of broken vinyl and pebbles of glass, and the needle had trouble staying in the grooves, but despite the wobbly, lopsided projection of the song, the message was clear, defiant. Over the stuttering piano drifted the voice of Connie Francis, who always sang like she was on the brink of tears. Who's sorry now? And then the record slowed to a stop, the needle retracted, and the metallic arm laid itself to rest. The crimson lights burning in the jukebox dimmed to nothingness. The lead detective shouldered his way out of the diner so the crime scene guys could pick their way through evidence like vultures in lab coats and wrap up their investigation. But Detective Panetta, shaking a cigarette out of a package and letting it dangle from his bottom lip, already had the story taking solid shape in his mind. He could rule out robbery. The lady had money in her purse, the couple's car was still parked in the lot, and stacks of cash sat untouched on the bar and in the till of the register. Must have been some kind of domestic dispute that got out of hand, and the husband, God Almighty, the strength that old codger must have had, the sheer force it must have taken to wedge those forty-fives into her without cracking them, seeking a weapon of opportunity, smashed open the juke and used the records like meat cleavers to take her down. She must have tried fighting him off with that pathetic mop, but she didn't stand a chance against that kind of killer frenzy. And the old man... Clean as a newborn baby, must have tired himself out and keeled over when he was done. A lot of good it did him. If he was looking to escape from her, they're together again, wherever they are now, in whatever form they've taken. Like every scene of a crime smeared with blood and brain matter and grey faces frozen in gaping terror, it was all such a waste. That jukebox, though... When the stink could be washed off today, uh, maybe he could make a bit to buy the relic, pitch a few bucks at the family to help with burial costs in exchange for taking the old Wurlitzer off their hands, polish it up, load it with some new records. It could be a beauty again, bubbling away in the corner of his man cave down in his basement as it spins some classic Johnny Cash and Merle Haggard. Replace some of the mutilated trim, install some new glass. There was still a fragment stuck in the frame with a little scrap of paper sealed to it with clear packing tape. What had it said? Oh, yeah, a weird little warning. A shaking finger from the previous owner who was now being wheeled out in a plastic sack like luncheon meat. That was Trevor Tolliver's Don't Play the Song on D6 as read by Martin Rato. Martin Rato is an educator, writer, and musician. He has worked in an eclectic variety of fields, including 18 years as a technical writer and software developer, 16 years as a teacher of creative writing, computer science, and business communication, 
and shorter stints as a symphony musician and audiobook narrator. He has published short fiction and two collections of his poetry. Thank you, Martin. That will be our show for the evening, Children of the Night. Visit our Patreon page in the links below, and don't forget to like us on iTunes. Our show is produced by our editor, Scott Silk, and associate editors, Seth Williams and Drew Sebastini. Website designed by Josh Lightsey and theme music by Diane Severson. Join us again next week for another episode of Tales to Terrify. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit Juvederm.com.